Most people have a dream of some kind, some kind of a lifelong ambition, a hope. And I think those get changed from time to time as you go through stages of life, as God changes your heart, changes your motivation. The dreams you had when you were younger probably aren't there today. And God has changed the motivation of your heart. And, uh, but we all have some kind of a dream, a wish. We picture ourselves being in a certain place or a, a position maybe used by God in a special way. Paul the Apostle had a dream. He had a dream to preach to a certain group of people. Actually, Paul had a dream and his vision far outstretched any boundary. He wanted to preach the gospel as long as God would give him breath. He saw no retirement plan in his future. He saw no eight-week vacation in the Caribbean. He just wanted to live every breath for the glory of the Lord and preach the gospel with every breath God would give him. And he had a dream that he would be able to go back to the Jewish people, the nation that he was a part of, especially in Jerusalem, and share a testimony that would make an impact on the nation that he had grown to love so much. He wanted to go and share with his own people, the Jews. Although Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, he was known as that and he functioned as that. He wrote a letter and he said, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles and I magnify my ministry. It's a great ministry that I have. God has opened up so many doors all over the world to share with people who'd never heard the gospel before. I magnify my ministry. And though he was an apostle to the Gentiles and he took the gospel beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem and Judea and he took it up into Antioch and then Antioch of Pisidia and then over to Macedonia and Achaia and Asia Minor, he had a lifelong ambition to go back to Jerusalem to share with his teachers, to share with his fellow Jerusalemites the things that Jesus had done. To share the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of Scripture and that Jesus Christ changed his life. I have a friend down in Dallas, Texas, and he's come here before. Some of you are familiar with K.P. Yohanan. A short, thin, fiery little man from southern India. He was born and raised in India, and you can tell it every time he speaks. That really thick accent that he has. But he loves the Lord. He was born in India of Christian parents, and he, at an early age, came to know Christ and served Christ in operation mobilization in that country. Came to America to go to school, went through Bible college and seminary, and was going to take up a church in the Texas area. But the longer he was in this country, the longer he wanted to go back to his own country. He saw America, he saw the advantages, he saw the allurements, but his memory brought him way back to all those people in his village and in the surrounding state of Karnataka and the southern part of India. Oh, he wanted to go back. And so he started an organization called Gospel for Asia, which takes the gospel into all parts of India. And now thousands of missionaries have been raised up because of that vision to go back to his own country and share with people who hadn't heard the gospel before. And now he's on the radio over there and his voice is heard probably more than any other voice of any radio preacher around since he's on the Transworld uh, radio that you know, reaches millions upon millions upon millions of people in Asia. Paul the Apostle was like that. 
wanted to go back and share with his own people and his heart wouldn't rest even though there were prophets along the way who said, don't go back. And the people who loved him said, don't go back. They'll lynch you, man. You haven't got a chance. In fact, the Holy Spirit prophesied through Agabus and others, if you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to tie you up and they're going to beat you. And of course, Paul didn't care. Paul said, let him beat me. I'm ready to die for Jesus. I want to go back and share my faith. Now, Paul had gone back to Jerusalem before. The first time he tried to go back was immediately after his conversion. You remember he was on the road to Damascus. Jesus smacked him off his horse. He was blinded by that light. He said, who are you, Lord? Jesus said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And Ananias came and said, Paul, you will bear witness to me, to kings, to rulers, and to the Gentiles. So he went to Damascus, and he caused an uproar in Damascus. He preached so heartily that he caused an uproar in the town. They had to put him in a large laundry basket, or actually it was a garbage basket, and lower him over the wall and send him on his way. So he went to Jerusalem where he sat at the feet of Gamaliel years before and he went to his own people, started going to the synagogues this time. Well, he was too hot to handle for the synagogues because he came in and said, Listen, you remember me? Oh, yes, you're the noted rabbi. In fact, you're the guy who arrests Christians and kills Christians. None of the Christians would join themselves with Paul. They were scared to death of him. But he'd walk into the synagogue and say, I'm a Christian. And I believe in Israel and I believe in the Scriptures. In fact, I believe in the Messiah. He's already come. You don't have to look for Him anymore. He's Jesus. Believe me, I know. He knocked me off my horse. (laughs) And He got my attention. And He caused such an uproar in Jerusalem that they had to send Him back to Tarsus in Cilicia. And He was there for a number of years. Every time Paul tried to go back to Jerusalem after that, He had a hard time. He was rejected. And so he turned to the Gentiles. He preached the gospel to the Gentiles. And we've read about it in several chapters in the book of Acts. Several chapters back, he goes to this place just north called Antioch of Pisidia. And he goes, as was his custom, to the synagogue. He was a Jew. And they didn't listen to him. They argued. And so he went on two Sabbath days because there were people who wanted to listen to him. And the second Sabbath day, Paul had such a crowd that wanted to hear the refreshing message of the gospel that the Jews who ran the synagogue became jealous and started blaspheming and cussing Paul out. And Paul said, look, it was necessary that the gospel be first preached to you. But since you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, he started shaking his clothes off. He said, we're going to the Gentiles. Sometime later, he went to Corinth and he preached to the Jews first into the synagogue. Same thing happened. An uproar developed in the city. And so Paul said, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean of this thing. From now on, we are going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And God opened the doors wide to the Gentiles. But still, he wanted to go back. And he went back. He had his dream fulfilled when he got to go back to Jerusalem and testify to his Jewish brethren. But the dream didn't pan out the way he wanted it to. I'm sure he had in his, in his mind the ability to stand before the crowds an inviting audience. Instead, it was a hostile audience. You see, what happened is Paul took a vow. 
And he went into the temple. And he went to worship and to pay some money for those who had taken a Nazarite vow to show kindness to the Jewish nation and to bring alms and offering that he'd taken in Macedonia. While he was there, there were some Asian Jews. And they recognized Paul. Isn't that that crazy preacher who was hanging around Corinth and Ephesus and Achaia and all these places? And we kicked him out of our town. That's the guy. And because he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, and they saw Paul in the city some days before with a Gentile, an Ephesian named Trophimus, they suspected that Paul illegally brought this Gentile into the Jewish temple. And so they caused a riot. And they took Paul and they started beating him. And I'm sure as the fists are hitting his face, he goes, God, this isn't what I had in mind when I had this dream to come back to my brethren. And they would have just pummeled Paul to death were it not for the Roman garrisons over there in the Antonia Fortress next to the Temple Mount who rushed down with some soldiers and put an end to the riot. And they rescued Paul. And so Paul, you know, got his wits about him. He said, hey, I'd like to go back and speak to these people. Can I? And so the guy said, oh, are you nuts? And so Paul walked out on top of the Antonia Fortress, which is a large wall overlooking the entire temple complex. Thousands of people could be out there and he'd have an audience, but nobody could get him. The wall was like, you know, 60 feet high. And so Paul started preaching to them. He thought, I've got my day. I've got my audience. This is what I've always dreamed of. Look at them. They're there. They don't love me. They hate me. But here it is. I'm on the Antonia Fortress protected by the Roman government. I've got a captive audience. I'm going to make it good. And so he started giving his testimony. He said, you know, let me tell you something, brethren. You know me. I'm a Jew. I hung out with you guys. You know who I am. You know what makes me tick. And as you know, there's nothing more powerful than personal testimony, especially among your peers. You've changed, and they want to know why you've changed. And here's Paul. You know me. I broke bread with you guys. You know my lifestyle. And I was on the way to Damascus, and Jesus knocked me off my horse, and I wouldn't argue with him, and I accepted him in my heart. And I've been all over the world, and I tried to preach the gospel to the Jews all over the world, and God told me, go from here and preach to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until he said that word. And when he said the word Gentile, they started pulling their hair, and they're tearing their clothes, and just frothing at the mouth, ready to just stomp on this guy once again. And he's speaking in Hebrew, so the guy, the Roman soldier, has no idea what he's saying. And when the crowd starts rioting and, you know, throwing dust up in the air, the Roman says, what did you say that would cause these people to get so out of touch? Well, Paul went back to the barracks where they kept him as a prisoner. And a group of Jews, 40 people, got together and said, look, let's have a little vow here. Let's kill Paul the Apostle. In fact, let's just make a promise. We won't eat any food until he's dead. All right, you're on. They shook hands on it. They weren't going to eat until Paul was... But God, in His providence, had the nephew of Paul the Apostle overhear the conversation of those who were plotting against him, told the commander of the garrison, Lysias, this whole project. And so he took Paul by night and sent him to Caesarea, where he would stand trial before a succession of rulers. He will be there a little bit over two years 
in house arrest. And we pick up on the story in chapter 25. Now, keep in mind Paul's dream. Paul had the dream to share with his Jewish brethren. It backfired seemingly on him. He also had a dream to go to Rome, and it seemed like that was backfiring on him. But a strange twist of coincidence, we would call it, we should call it biblically sovereignty, providence occurs, that will allow Paul to not only share with the Jews in Jerusalem, but with the people in Rome, even Caesar Nero himself. And he's going to go all the way to the top. And God's going to open that door, but not in a way that he expected. And so we get to chapters 24, 25, and 26, which describes Paul the Apostle in Caesarea. We've already discussed chapter 24. And 25 is essentially an introduction to chapter 26. But because 26 is so rich, I thought we would just read through chapter 25, look at a few things, glean a few principles, and then uh, call it quits. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now let me just give you a little bit of background in this place, a little bit of history, a little bit of topography and geography. Jerusalem was the capital of the Jewish nation. I mean, everything happened there. The temple was there. The Levites were there. If you were a Jew from anywhere, you want to go to Jerusalem, especially at Passover. However, the center for the government was not in Jerusalem. It was in Caesarea. The procurator had his office, his main office, in Caesarea. Pontius Pilate had his office in Caesarea. And if you go on a trip to Israel, we can show you an inscription stone still existing in Caesarea with the name Pontius Pilate inscribed on it. We know he was there. After Pilate came Felix, not Felix the cat, Felix the governor. And then after him, a guy by the name of Festus after two years. Now, uh, we read about him in chapter 25 where he also hears Paul's uh, uh, case and takes him to court. Caesarea, it's the first place we stop on a tour to Israel. We fly into Tel Aviv. We spend the night at a hotel. And the first stop on day one of our tour is up the coast a few miles right on the beach to ancient Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea was named after Caesar Augustus. Herod the Great built this incredible town. In fact, he built a harbor that would rival any modern harbor in the world. And he took and he built a wall like two huge arms that stretch out into the sea so that when you come into this harbor, it's just perfectly peaceful no matter what kind of storms are out at sea. And it's huge. In fact, Josephus, writing about Caesarea, tells us that Herod the Great was able to defy and overcome nature by building this huge harbor. I don't know if you know this or not. We think we're ingenious people today with our cement structures and our uh, uh, ability to lift stones with um, cranes and metal and glass and foundations and downtown structures, but I don't think we come close to the way they used to build in the old days. 2,000 years ago, Herod the Great invented hydraulic cement. They have found the ruins of the harbor in Caesarea and they figured out how to pour cement that is wet into the ocean and have it dry underwater. 
The Romans developed that 2,000 years ago. It was a lost art until recently. Recently, I mean the last, you know, couple hundred years. But they developed it, and he built this whole structure with hydraulic cement as a foundation. And every one of the Romans around the world knew of Caesarea, so that became the Roman headquarters. However, because the Jewish headquarters was in Jerusalem, and, you know, Jews can be feisty. The Romans knew that. You had to have an office in Jerusalem. If you have an office in Caesarea, you've got to put one in Jerusalem because what if the Jews riot during one of their feasts? There can be millions of Jews that come from all over the world to Jerusalem. So what the Jews did is build in one section of the Temple Mount this huge fortress called Antonia, named after Mark Antony. The Antonia Fortress is where Pontius Pilate judged Jesus before he went to the cross. It was sort of like office number two for the procurator. And so we read that here's this guy, he's now in office, and he goes from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem I just read that, verse 4. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept in Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. So there's another conspiracy. Now, it's been two years. Give it a rest. You know, Paul's in prison. Let him go. But here, two years later, new governor. Remember last week we read that two years previous, Tertullus stood up and gave this polemic against Paul and his ministry trying to shut him down, but it didn't work. And so Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, left him bound for two years. Now two years later come. Festus, new governor, comes to Caesarea, goes up to Jerusalem. The Jews assault him. Hey, let me tell you about Paul the Apostle. Bring him to Jerusalem on trial. But in their hearts, they wanted to ambush him. They were going to wait on the road this time. You know, forget taking them to Caesarea at night. We'll be ready this time. And so they tell Festus, the new governor, their side of the story. I find it incredibly interesting and, first of all, wise that Festus did not listen to them. Oh, he listened to them. He had audience with them. But he didn't act on their request. No, instead... Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that shortly he himself was going there. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. There is a principle in the book of Proverbs that although Felix is not a Christian, or Festus is not a Christian man, he illustrates. Illustrates it beautifully. Proverbs 18 tells us, he that answers a matter before he hears it it is folly and shame to him. There's always a temptation to hear one side of the story. And if a person is in leadership, he knows better after a while. If a person is a counselor, a pastor, he knows better after a while. Somebody comes into the office, you know, let me tell you about my husband. He's a rat. He's a slob. He never picks up the trash. He's this and he's that. Now, if you listen to just that side of the story and you act on that side of the story, you're a fool. Until you get the other side of the story from the horse's mouth, you better not make a choice like that. You better search it out. And that's how gossip starts so often. 
by a foolish rumor that's never been checked out. It's a folly and it's a great shame and it's very destructive. Mark Twain said it greatly, accurately, when he said, a rumor makes its way halfway around the world while truth is still tying its shoelaces. Rumors travel so fast, truth doesn't. We just love to hear it. Oh, really? He did? Oh, yeah? She? Mm, wow. Well, if you're like that, it's a folly and a shame. And basically, the Scripture says you're a fool until you check it out. Festus wouldn't give in. He heard their side of the story. He said, look, hang on, guys. I'm going to Caesarea. I've heard about Paul. I'll check it out when I get there. And I suggest, since you're still hung up about this thing, that you go to Caesarea with me. Some of your notable people, let's go have a trial. This is the second trial. Now, Paul has no idea this is about to happen, and he's going to get fed up with it, as you're going to see in just a minute. But uh, I like that about Festus. He didn't act on something on impulse. He was waiting. And they said Festus was a, ro- a wise ruler, very young but very wise. And for the most part, the Jews admired him because he was so gracious as a ruler. He didn't give in to the whims of the people. You know, somebody once said that the difference between a gossip... And a concerned friend is the difference between a butcher and a surgeon. The difference between a butcher and a surgeon. Both cut the meat, but for different reasons. And Festus wasn't about to give in to it, so he encouraged them to come with him. And let's read on. And verse 6 says, When he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. There's a lesson here in the providence of God. I can imagine Paul... When they come to his cell and they say, Paul, Festus is here. So? He's the new governor. All right. You're going to court today. Oh, man. I did that two years ago. Oh, but this is a new governor. He wants to hear your case. Paul had no idea how the providence of God was going to use him for God's glory. First of all, think of the people Paul got to preach to at Caesarea. Well, he got to preach the gospel to Felix. He'll get to preach the gospel to Festus. He's going to meet King Agrippa II in just a minute, and eventually he's going to go to Rome and talk to Caesar Nero, all because God allowed him to be confined in prison and have this kind of a trial. You know, when you're going through trials, you don't see the whole picture. When you're confined, you don't see the whole picture. God does. We need to learn to trust God. Romans 8.28 All things work together for good to those who love God. Do you know how hard that is to believe at certain times of your life? And it would be easier, admit it, if Romans 8.28 said, some things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to Oh, yes, that's right. Surely, Lord, this is so neat. This has really been working for your good. It would be a lot easier for us to buy into that even if it said most things work together for good. But no, all things work together for good. God has your best interests in heart. 
and His glory at heart. And He will do things and allow things that will bring Him ultimate glory and is your best interest in heart. And Paul is going to get his dream come true. He preached the gospel to the Jerusalemites. He shared his witness. And now he wanted to go to Rome. He's going to go to Rome. Not the way he wanted to, but he's going to go on a prisoner ship in chains. But he'll be able to do a tremendous work for the Lord. There's once a story about a little boy who tried to get, put together a picture puzzle. And some of the pictures, some of the pieces were bright. Some of them were dark. And, you know, others didn't seem to fit together. Others didn't. He's spending a long time trying to put this puzzle together. Finally, in frustration, he gives up and he just gives the whole thing over to his dad. And his father, surprisingly enough, puts the puzzle together in about four or five minutes. The little boy said, how'd you do that? And the father said, well, son, I knew what the picture was like all the time. And I put the pieces together according to the picture. All you saw were some of the pieces. You didn't see the whole picture. I was able to see the picture and put the pieces of the puzzle together accordingly. That's how God is. God sees the big picture in your life. God sees the end from the beginning. God knows your future. You might try to predict it and wonder, and you might even get frustrated and complain at God. As if God doesn't know what He's doing. But all things work together for good. God has your best interests at heart. And the times you're frustrated and even bound, God is able to work all things for His glory. That's a beautiful thing about God. So, there He is at Caesarea, courts in session. And verse 8 says, While He answered for Himself, He says, quote, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Same spiel that he gave last time, two years before. Well, what's your defense, Paul? Not much. I didn't do what they said I did. That's it? Yeah. Don't you love that? Truth is its own best defense. Didn't try to lay out a big old argument. Just said it's not true. I love that. If you know something is the truth, you really don't have to defend yourself. And if you try to defend yourself, it kind of makes it a little weird, almost like it gets worse. If there's an accusation against you and it's not true, just don't worry about it. Let God handle it. You want to defend yourself? God will let you. You want God to defend you? He'll do it. And I'd much rather have the Lord as my defense. We sing that, don't we? You're my stronghold. You're my defense. Let Him be your defense. Paul said, I didn't do it. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and be judged before these, before me concerning these things? Now Festus went to Jerusalem. The Jews said, We want Paul in Jerusalem. He said, Look, I'll go to Caesarea. I'll take care of it. He goes to Caesarea and he wants to please the Jews. He wants to be fair to them, although he's not being fair with the legal system. Paul it could, nothing could be proved. He already had a trial, and it was a mistrial. If Paul didn't do anything wrong. Nothing could be proven. Two years later, he goes, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and have a fair trial? And notice Paul's response. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For I... If I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things, 
of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, it was the right of every Roman citizen, if you felt like you weren't being handled correctly, to go to an appellate court. And you could appeal all the way up to numero uno. What he's saying is, I don't like the way you're handling my case. I'm sick and tired of it. I'm not getting justice. I want to talk to Caesar Nero. And every Roman citizen had that right. If in a court of law, he felt the trial was not fair and square and he had grounds upon which to base that, he could appeal to Caesar. And Paul did it. He's basically saying, I'm sick of this. I'm frustrated there's no justice. And he said, I appeal to Caesar. Now, something I want to notice in these verses, and we'll probably only have time to cover these. I find this tremendously insightful into the nature of Paul the Apostle. Follow closely. Paul is both very spiritual and very practical. On one hand, he's just letting God defend him. He's trusting the Lord. Hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I said that two years ago. I say it today. He was willing to just trust the Lord. At the same time, he was also a very practical person and used every available means that was at his disposal. In other words, the legal system, the court system. He wasn't happy with the way the courts were being run, so he's going to take it to a higher court because it's not right. He wants to set a precedent probably for other Christians that would come along down the line. He didn't want to get walked on. He doesn't want to let the Christian community get walked on. So he says, I don't like your trial. Take me to Caesar Nero. I appeal to Caesar. There's a principle in the Scripture that we all know about. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. But you've got to walk in the paths when you trust the Lord to direct you in the paths. You've got to be willing to walk in obedience, in practicality. Where, in, where the rubber, you've got to make decisions. There were two kids taking a test in school. And there were two consecutive tests, and both kids with the rest of the class went in, took their test, came out at the end of the session. One student got great, a great grade, I think like an A, and the other one got a C. The one with the C came to the one with the A and said, hey, how'd you get such a good grade? He said, I prayed last night. I prayed that God would help me apply the knowledge I learned. And I took the test, and God answered my prayer. Little kid said, Hey, that's great. The next evening, he prayed because there was a test the next day. And so they went into the classroom the next day, and the kid who got the poor grade on the previous test and who prayed the second time went in, took the test, and he got a C minus. He got a worse grade. Well, the other kid, the first time who got an A, got an A again. And so the kid was angry and said, Hey, I prayed. He said, I did too. I got an A. Well, I prayed last night. I got a C minus this time. How come? He said, well, I don't know, but I'll tell you what I did. I studied all night, and then I prayed before I went to bed that God would help me apply the knowledge. See, the first kid just prayed. The other one was very practical, put his nose to the grindstone, worked, studied, and then committed it to God. said, God, whatever you want to do with it. Paul was like that. He was spiritual, but he was also very practical. And when it comes to the laws of the land, he places himself at their disposal. And he says, I go to Caesar's judgment seat. And I want you to notice something. I don't know if, if you've noticed this before. 
But um, Paul said in verse 10, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I do no wrong, as you very well know. Before I get into the next verse, I just want to share something with you along those lines. Uh, Several years ago, the owner of our previous building over on Snow Heights saw that the church was growing. He was a businessman in Beverly Hills. And he had, we had a fixed rent we paid on that building. And back then, you know, uh, it was for a lot less. I think we paid 10000 a month in rent for like 20,000 square feet. So, you know, it was the best deal going in that part of town. Well, the owner of the building who lived in Beverly Hills saw that the church was growing and the parking lot was crowded and now there's all these people coming to the church more than ever before. And so he comes to me and he says... Um, I want to enter into a new lease agreement with you. I want to get you into a fixed lease. I said, well, we already got one. Oh, but I want to extend it a little longer. And I figure we could negotiate the rent, maybe, you know, up the rent a little bit, maybe almost double, and, uh, and then lock you guys into this for a long, long time. I said, no way, man. We've got a fixed lease for the next three years. Or we had it, we had it for, I guess, another year at that time coming up. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll put it to you this way. If you don't go along with my plan, I think I'm going to take you to court and sue you. Well, you know, you can sue a person for anything. You may not win, but you can try. I said, well, how are you going to sue us? He said, well, you see those two doors you put back by the stage, those emergency exit? You never got my permission. And in my lease document, it says that any kind of alteration to the structure of the building has to be cleared through me. Otherwise, the lease is null and void. I said, that's true, but what you fail to realize is that we have permission to enter this building contingent upon the codes of the land which require those exits. So we had your permission, sign the agreement, and the fire marshal made us do that. So he got angry at that. He goes, well, I'm going to take you to court. So we sat down with him, and we tried to reason it out. And I trusted God. Lord, look, I don't want to get taken to court. But what angered me is that he was trying to take advantage of you. He saw that more were coming, and obviously he could afford it more, and so I'm going to get more money out of him. And I wouldn't let him do it. And so a couple of us sat down, and we tried to reason over lunch, and he would get angry and fume and hit the table. And so we finally kind of pulled up Paul the Apostle. We said, you know, we agree with you. Actually, you're right. A judge is going to have to decide this case. There's two value systems here. You believe you're right. We know we're right. So we'll see you in court. Now, if you were a Christian, I would have settled it out of court because the Scripture says you shouldn't take these things before unbelievers. But this man was was a pharaoh. You know, making us work uh, without any straw on our bricks. I said, buddy, we'll see you in court. So we're going to go to court. And God worked it out so beautifully. That kind of forced us out of Egypt. And it got us looking really fast for a new building. And we found this one. And we found it and we called them up and said, okay, you're right, we'll break the lease, we're out of there. And we left. But we used the available system that was 
that was there at our disposal. Paul writes about it in Romans 13. doesn't mean it's always right, but Paul the Apostle in Romans 13 said, Be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is from God. And he goes on to say that the person in charge in government is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword, which means the sword of execution or capital punishment, in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, in line with that thinking, we'll cover the next verse and we'll close here. Look at verse 11. Paul says, For if I am an offender, or if I have committed anything deserving of death, I don't object to dying. Oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. We get here, in a sense, in a backhanded sense, but very definitely, Paul's view on punishment, even capital punishment, and he's the one on trial. He says, listen, if I deserve the death penalty, I'm, I'm ready to die. I'm willing. I don't object. But you can't prove any of these things. Yeah, if you can prove it, fine. I'll pay the penalty. But you can't. Now, it's one thing to say, you know, I believe in just punishment for a crime. It's another thing to be a prisoner when the death penalty could be perhaps looking at you and say, if you can prove it, do it. I heard a story back in, uh, back in Florida this week of a young kid. His, name, his nickname was Gator. Out in California, he was the maker, the manufacturer of Gator skateboards. And, he, you know, he had the world on a string, made a lot of money from making these skateboards. And Gator, you know, got real successful, got lots of money, got very popular and started partying and getting involved with the wrong crowd. And one evening, involved with the wrong crowd, he took out this young girl who was a Satanist, went to a party, got too loaded, and ended up killing her. That happened in the past. Nobody found out about it. Nobody found the body. And he just went right on living. He came to a friend of mine's church in California, got saved, and came to the pastor and told the pastor his past. The pastor said, you know, you're going to have to confess your crime and turn yourself in. Gator said, I'm willing to do that. I know I have to do that. And so with the pastor, with Brian, Gator went down and turned himself in and confessed the crime and they searched it and and they were going to convict him for the crime. He could get life imprisonment. And he knew he could get life imprisonment because of the kind of uh, uh, crime it was and the way he committed murder. During the court proceedings, his attorney told him to plead innocent. The plea bargain, he'd get off a lot easier if he'd cooperate. Gator said, I can't do that, man. I'm guilty. And I'm going to plead guilty. And it just infuriated his attorney. You you can get life for this. Listen, if I get life, I get life. If I get death, I get death. But I've got to pay my debt to society. I'm convicted. Besides that, I feel as though God is calling me into a prison ministry. And I see this is the best way. Because I'm there for a long time. And the final decision hasn't been made yet, but he saw, he was convicted that, listen, if I'm guilty, then go for it. 
in the interviews with Ted Bundy before his death. Ted Bundy was convicted of those horrible crimes. You know the crimes. And in his interview, you know, he said, I have to tell you something. I deserve death. I'm not looking forward to it, but I deserve it. I need to pay my debt to society. It's wrong what I have done. I'm not fit to live. And they executed him. A guy on our staff, Rick, one of his uh, good friends growing up. And Rick's an attorney. was an attorney. was a lawyer. He repented of law. But... Uh, <laughs> His good friend that he grew up with. I don't know all the circumstances, but was convicted of a crime and they were going to give him the death sentence. And they did give him the death sentence. He was executed. But before his execution, he was on videotape. And he gives a testimony about what happened and about his life. And basically, he surmises that what's going to happen, he deserves to have happen. And Paul the Apostle said, If you can find anything in me worthy of death, I am not unwilling to die but you can't substantiate uh, these accusations. Which brings us to the whole issue of capital punishment. And um, I was going to go into that and a few other scriptures, but time's up. So I'll have to go into it next time. We'll just read on verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. His dream's about to be fulfilled, folks. The dream to preach to the Jews, the dream to preach to the head of the government itself, Caesar Nero, will be his. He has no idea that he's going to have his head cut off at the hand of Caesar Nero later on. But at least he'll be able to give a witness. And Paul said, whether I live or I die, I belong to Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And you know what? When you live like that, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter if you're in prison in Caesarea. It doesn't matter if you get your head cut off. Because either way, it's a chance to serve the Lord. If I'm here, I'm going to go for broke. If I'm in heaven, I'm going to hang out. It's a chance to serve the Lord. If I'm here, I'm going to go for broke. If I'm in heaven, I'm going to hang out. 